Hey folks, before we dive into today's episode, we've got some exciting news for you. Mark your calendars for September 17th to 19th, 2024, because Bioport Atlantic is on the horizon. This marks the 23rd year of bringing together the brightest minds in the life sciences sector. This year's theme, Powered by Possibilities, promises to ignite inspiration and foster collaboration amongst attendees. Whether you are an entrepreneur, a researcher, an investor, or a student eager to dive into the world of life sciences, our conference offers something for everyone. Save the date, and for more details, visit lifesciencesnovascotia.ca slash bioportatlantic, or check the link in our show notes. Can't wait to see you at Bioport Atlantic 2024. The world is full of tough questions. Questions that as of right now have no great answers. Luckily for us, there are people out there who are thinking about them, examining them from every angle and understanding their nuance. There is one such question that rises above arguably all others. In 2050, the UN projects that planet Earth will be inhabited by 10 billion people. And one of the biggest questions we face as a human species is, how will we feed ourselves? From Life Sciences Nova Scotia and Snack Labs, welcome to New Wave, a podcast that explores the pioneers that are shaping the future of life sciences. When we talk about this problem, we have to, at least in part, disregard the luxurious nature of how many of us think about food. This is not a problem of how to feed ourselves the scrumptious delicatessens of the world or the creature comfort foods that we dig out of the back of our freezer on a Friday night in, but rather how we will feed ourselves to simply stay alive. Food is important. There are many cultural and societal importances that we have placed on food, and those are important. But for the purposes of the adventure that we'll be embarking on in this episode, We'll largely ignore those and speak more directly to the threat of running out of food on a global scale. There are a handful of essential ingredients we need in our diets in order to develop and function properly as human beings. In today's episode, we're going to turn our attention to one of the most important and at-risk nutrients in the world. This nutrient is essential in every sense of the word. Without it, day-to-day life becomes extremely difficult. I'm talking about omega-3. So omega-3s are important in the human diet for a couple of reasons. This is Stephanie Colombo. I'm Stephanie Colombo. I'm an associate professor at Dalhousie University and Canada Research Chair in Agriculture Nutrition. I have a PhD and master's in biology where I focused on nutrition of farmed fish like Atlantic salmon, rainbow trout, Atlantic cod, and halibut, and I have an undergraduate degree in marine biology. Omega-3 was first recognized as an essential piece of the human diet in the 1920s when the term essential fatty acid was first coined, because it is precisely that, essential. So an essential fatty acid means that your body can't make it, but you need it. So that means you have to have it in your diet 
For us humans, there's two essential fatty acids, linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic acid. That's omega-6 and omega-3. You may be vaguely aware that it's something you want in your body, but if you're anything like me, you were probably blissfully unaware of the laundry list of crucial bodily functions that omega-3 provides. Now, there's other fatty acids that your body uses and you really need them, but you can make them kind of. Roddy's not super efficient at it. And those two are called eicosapentaenoic acid, EPA, and eicosahexaenoic acid, DHA. And those are the most famous, probably, omega-3s because they're related to a lot of our physiological functions. So we've got essential fatty acids that our body doesn't make, and we've got to get them in our diet. One of them is omega-3, but there are different versions or types of omega-3. Two of the most important ones for human function being EPA and DHA. So throughout this episode, consider omega-3, EPA, and DHA to be synonyms. Like, for example, DHA is super important for brain and neurological development, your eyes, and EPA is extremely important for heart and cardiovascular health and is an anti-inflammatory molecule. Scientific research across decades has provided evidence that omega-3 fatty acids are key to healthy brain and eye development in utero. It can improve symptoms of anxiety and depression. It improves eye health, decreases the risk of heart disease, and reduces symptoms of metabolic syndrome, like high blood pressure. It can also reduce the production of cytokines, which are molecules that produce inflammation. And several studies have linked omega-3 consumption to helping prevent neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's. Suffice it to say, you need it. So what makes omega-3s unique? Well, you classify an omega-3 fatty acid by the positioning of where the first double bond is. And that makes a fatty acid in the omega-3 family. And they're special for particularly those two I just mentioned, EPA and DHA, because they are related to all kinds of things like cell signaling, um, precursor to hormones. They have a lot of different ways that they're involved in our overall health. So in our cells, we have what's called a lipid bilayer, like that's the cell membrane that all of our our cells are composed of. And fatty acids play an important role in the ability for important molecules to come in and out of the cell. And because of their structure, it allows for more fluidity in the membrane so those important molecules can go in and out. So that's cell signaling. And that's one reason or a very important reason why DHA is so important in our brains. There are many obstacles to feeding 10 billion people. Let's start with the one obstacle that is upstream of all the others. Climate change. The earth is warming. The jury's been in on that for a while now. Who's responsible for it? Well, all signs point to us humans. And depending on who you ask, this is an issue that is creeping toward us slowly and manageably, or it's barreling toward us like a runaway train, leaving catastrophe in its wake. I suspect it's both. Some things seem to be responding to climate change more acutely, like the weather patterns we see right here in North America. Hurricane season brings more intense and more frequent storms, 
wildfires rage in places that have barely ever experienced them before, and flooding is commonplace where it's rarely been an issue. Some things, though, respond more slowly. And it may be these much slower, much less noticeable things that lurk with more sinister consequences on a global scale. One thing I would bet you haven't thought much about is how climate change will affect your ability to get one of the most essential nutrients in your diet. There's really only one kind of class of foods that are very high in DHA, and that is anything aquatic. That's fish, that's shellfish, that's microalgae, that's seaweeds. And the ocean is a plentiful source of EPA and DHA, which we use. We know that single, many single studies have been done looking at manipulating temperature and growing microalgae at different temperatures. And we already know that at warmer temperatures, many species of microalgae already produce less DHA. So we did this large data synthesis study. Basically, our question was, with climate change, are we going to have less omega-3s in the world? And sure enough, DHA production around the world will decrease by at least 30% by 2100 based on the most conservative climate models. Okay, for a moment here, this may seem unrelated, but bear with me. Have you seen the Christopher Nolan movie Interstellar? If you haven't, it takes place in an undefined point in the future, where climate change has made all forms of agriculture basically impossible, and the world is headed towards a mass starvation event. The government is determined to produce innovative farmers to solve the problem of our untillable land left barren by the changing climate. Matthew McConaughey's lead character, Cooper, now a farmer but formerly a military pilot, is chosen to pilot a spacecraft that will go in search of a planet that is suitable for the human race to escape to, as Earth is no longer a viable planet for the human race. Unbeknownst to the public at large, the agricultural crisis is not the Earth's biggest problem. Actually, it's the changing composition of the atmosphere which will slowly eat up all the oxygen, leaving humans to suffocate, not starve. I couldn't help but think of this narrative when I was sitting with Stephanie, learning about how the warming ocean temperatures may slowly cause the nutrients within our most cherished food sources to dwindle away. All while our attention is diverted towards other, seemingly more pressing issues caused by climate change. But don't worry. This is not a story of doom and gloom. It's actually a story of hope and innovation and global empathy. The inspiration to both help the planet avoid this catastrophe and feed Earth's ever-growing population in a sustainable way is all wrapped up into one Nova Scotian company. Meet Marc Saint-Ange. Hi, I'm Marc Saint-Ange. I am the founder of Small Food, Inc. It's hard to predict, you know, what the future of the oceans, you know, there's some uh, researchers that have published studies that we might run out of fish in by 2050. That is a huge threat to our human population. And we also have a growing population. The idea of this problem of feeding 10 billion people and how we might solve it did not simply pop into Mark's mind one day. Mark has spent the last 30 years founding companies that solve problems in new and innovative ways, 
And each one has influenced and informed the how and the why of tackling this monumentally gigantic issue. Yeah, I think all of my projects or the companies that I've founded kind of have taught me something, right? Something really important that led to the next thing. In 2003, Mark founded Ascenta Health. Ascenta manufactures natural health products with a focus on omega-3. Essentially, Mark solved a decades-old problem of consuming omega-3 in a way where you could actually absorb it into your body and so that it didn't taste rancid. So the omega-3 category was something that uh, became very compelling to me. It's such an important nutrient, so fundamental to how the body works, every single cell, the inflammatory response, our nervous system, our brain, everything. Yet it's, it's a nutrient that's been kind of eradicated from almost from our diets. People just generally don't eat a lot of seafood. What is the problem I'm trying to solve there? I'm just like, okay, well, there's a lot of clinical evidence to say that omega-3s can do a lot of benefits, like would have a huge impact on human health if we can find a way to get people to eat more or consume more or take a supplement. But fish oil and most, you know, our, our parents and grandparents are going to tell you like, yeah, you know, I was force-fed cod liver oil in, in the early days. It tastes so foul. Well, even still, the, the fish oil supplements of the day, even if they're in a capsule, you don't take it from a spoon, but they're in a capsule, that's going to repeat on you. You're going to start burping up fish all day long. So really, fish oils, even in a capsule form, were a, a socially unacceptable form of supplementation. doesn't matter the benefits that someone could derive from it. We're social creatures, right? And we don't want to be that person burping up fish. That was really a chemistry problem. So that was kind of what I really saw as the opportunity because growing up here in Nova Scotia, I would go fishing as a young kid. And, and I knew like when you haul uh, you know, a trout out of the river, it doesn't smell, it's very clean. But if you let it sit around on the picnic table for the afternoon in the sun, it changes very quickly. Now those omega-3 fats are starting to break down, and even in parts per, per million and even parts per billion, you start to get that characteristic fishy taste and smell. That's what people don't like. That's the thing that we need to avoid if we're going to actually encourage people to take this as a supplement. That is a chemistry problem. That's a, an oxidation problem, the breakdown of these fats. We were so successful that most of our business, surprisingly, was a form of omega-3 fish oil that you would take from the spoon. 50 years ago, that was the most revolting thing. Uh, no one wanted to take cod liver oil. Ascenta Health was, was uh, important for me because it wasn't just about health. It was really about how can business be a force for good? You know, because at the end of the day, that's kind of, I think that's really where I come from is like, I really want to help people. And so omega-3 is nothing new to Mark. It's something he's been thinking about for a very long time. He began searching for a small solution to a big problem. A lot of these new, this new next, this current generation of sustainable products, I think, are more. Sometimes they're like a, a sustainable form of mal malnutrition, right? And so I came from the wellness space. I had my whole wellness journey personally. And so I knew at the end of the day, like I can't, I'm never going to introduce a product that I do not think really nourishes people. After 10 years, $20 million and 20,000 microbes screened, they found it. 
a marine microorganism found in a unique strain of microalgae that produces a spectacular long-chain omega-3. What was discovered was a microalgae. I said, okay, yeah, I've heard of microalgae before. There's a lot of different microalgaes out there and doing this and that. And there's a huge diversity uh, in the world of just microalgae. This one was very, very unique. And, and it was selected uh, from a screening program of over 20,000 unique microbes. It started with a very specific set of questions and specifications, and then it it amassed a massive library of, of microbes and screened them. This was years and millions of dollars of, of research and discovery uh, to find this. The quest for this microbe, the purpose wasn't to find omega-3. That was just a happy accident. The purpose was to find a protein. And the one that they found was perfect. You need protein. And you need a lot of it. You need so much that even if you are actively thinking about how much you're getting from your daily food intake, it can be challenging to get enough. Proteins are made up of chemical building blocks called amino acids, and they perform a gigantic spectrum of functions throughout your body. You might be familiar with their role in repairing muscle tissue after a tough workout, but you might be less tuned into their role in producing hormones that regulate your mood and enzymes that help you digest food create energy and clot blood. Uh, protein is a macronutrient and proteins are composed of amino acids. And there are also essential amino acids. You can't make them yourself. So you need to consume protein in your diet to access those essential amino acids. All proteins are not created equally in terms of your ability to digest them. So some foods, that have protein are more easily digested by our body than other foods that have protein. So you always want to have protein that is more digestible. So can your body digest it? Can it extract the protein from the cells of whatever you're eating, plant or animal? In that sense, proteins are not the same. The reason why protein is so essential to human nutrition is because it is the building block of really our physical structure. Like all of our our muscles are the obvious you know requirement for uh, for protein. That we cannot we cannot maintain or rebuild or grow muscle unless we have a good source of high quality protein. Protein is not used just for uh, making muscles, right? It's like it's the it's the factories within the cell are are producing proteins and enzymes are proteins. So there's structures within every single cell of our body that require a good high quality uh, source of amino acids. For us, a perfect protein was really about the, the amino acid composition. Also, all microbes produce protein. They have to, right? They all produce some form of fats or lipids and carbohydrates, right? But when you start to survey the landscape of microbes out there, it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's mostly not usable because they're amino acids that are either missing or they're not produced in the right levels for human nutrition. That's why this particular microbe was selected partly for its amino acid composition. And it was selected because we had a, a target. This is, we said, using kind of beef as a, as a gold standard uh, for amino acid composition, we said, okay, could there be a microbe out there that would actually have a very similar amino acid composition to something like beef. And so it took, you know, many, many years uh, and research uh, to find that microbe. 
But that's why we called it the, the perfect micro. Mark's company, Small Food, takes this microalgae and they grow it. To way oversimplify it, it goes through a fermentation process. It gets separated from the water that is used in that fermentation process and further dried out to remove all moisture. What small food is left with is essentially what looks like a powder, only it's an incredibly nutrient-dense powder with a protein and omega-3 content by weight that isn't found in any other food source. It's then ready to be an ingredient that can be used in anything from alternative seafood products to fish feed in farmed fish factories, which is important to our food security right now, as in today. That's because fish farms around the world have been forced into periodic shutdowns because there's a lack of feed to grow the fish that the global food supply demands. The aquaculture industry recognized probably about 30 years ago that relying on wild sourced fish meal and fish oil as a main ingredient in the diet was going to be problematic from an environmentally sustainability perspective, from a biodiversity perspective, and from an economic standpoint. In 2020, an organization by the name of XPRIZE launched a competition called Feed the Next Billion. XPRIZE is a U.S.-based nonprofit that has been hosting public competitions that encourage technological development for the benefit of humanity, and they've been doing it since 1994. XPRIZE is an organization that is aware and elevating to the world, like we have an existential crisis here. We have what, what they define as grand challenges, right? And so they actually create these competitions uh, that are global. Anyone on the planet is able to apply for one of these competitions. And, you know, the motives are pretty high because, you know, we're talking, you know, 10, 20, even up to $100 million dollars to solve one of these, these, these grand challenges. And, you know, there's been themes uh, presented, and I think those themes really represent what we all know are kind of like the, the key pillars that need to be addressed for humanity to, to move forward. They've conducted dozens of competitions that have incentivized tech developments that have changed our world, like the XPRIZE for suborbital spaceflight. And it laid the technological groundwork for private spaceflight companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin. Or the $100 million prize for carbon removal, funded by Elon Musk and the Musk Foundation. The Feed the Next Billion competition was developed in response to the release of XPRIZE's Future of Food Impact Roadmap. This was an in-depth analysis of global food system challenges that identified 12 radical breakthroughs which could establish a more food-secure and environmentally sustainable world by 2050. Remember, 2050, 10 billion people. The critical impact area that XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion addresses is the need for alternative proteins at scale. The winner will receive $15 million. It's called Feed the Next Billion, right? So it's, it's very clear what it is. Like, we're going to have a big challenge on feeding the next billion, let alone the next three billion. The way the competition was structured is like companies or teams or individuals could uh, apply to solve for one of two uh, food challenges is producing enough chicken or fish, but from non-animal sources. Non-animal sources. Just remember that. We haven't dug into exactly why that is, but we're almost there. So keep that in mind. 
So this actually aligned very well with kind of the small food thinking about if we're actually going to try to feed the world a seafood product, it actually has to be nutritious. And so XPRIZE gave teams a choice. You could try to create a non-animal chicken breast or a non-animal fish fillet. But it has to have, yes, taste, texture. It has to have nutrition. So actually, it's very, very stringent criteria for for nutrition. You have to be 90% accurate to the actual nutritional profile of the product you're trying to create a substitute for, so the filet or or the chicken breast. Because it's not just about getting protein. Humans need a certain quality of protein, so the, the amino acid composition. So you know, our metabolism is uh, quite efficient at, you know, extracting the value from animal type proteins. You know, they have a very, very high biological value. And so that was used as kind of like the gold standard. So could a microbe out there actually give us the same thing, you know, making those animals then obsolete as far as a protein perspective, it has to be done in a scalable way, right? And so, yeah, you can create like this fancy new technology that creates the perfect, you know, fish fillet, but if it's not going to be scalable in the next 30 years, then what's the point, right? So scalability was really, really important. And then cost. Feeding the next billion isn't going to be, the population boom is not going to be in New York and LA and Toronto. Like that's not what they're referring to is like they have identified there are regions of the world that are going to suffer severely because they do not have access to enough nutritious and accessible food. As most of you are probably familiar with, there are meat and seafood alternatives out there, and they are increasingly easier to find. But the issue is, they all fall short in most, if not all, of the categories that this competition prioritizes. When it comes to the options we have available to us today, you might get something that tastes good, but has little to no nutritional value. This current generation of sustainable products, I think, are more, sometimes they're like a a sustainable form of malnutrition. We have to consider our food security, but it's it's not just food. It's it's our nutritional security because, yeah, we, we could have food that's just full of carbohydrates, but we actually need essential amino acids and essential fatty acids to survive. So I like to say that companies like small food are part of a solution for nutritional security not just food security at the end of the day humans are humans we have desires for food that are not simply driven by our nutritional needs but also by the evolutionary wiring of our brains which makes us crave certain flavors and textures we also love eating salmon and salmon is culturally important to us in north america growing up here in nova scotia like you Like, you have seawater in your blood. And these priorities are increasingly intersected by a sense of responsibility for our climate and the ethical conflicts of animal welfare. It's pretty well known that producing food has an impact on climate change, but it's something that we have to do, right? And so we have to consider what industries are having larger impacts than others and what food production industries can actually help mitigate effects of climate change. When we talk about the big impact that our food systems have on the climate, it's, it's a lot of it is geared towards like how we produce protein. And of course, everyone knows now the narrative of like, you know, animal uh, protein production is uh, very destructive to 
uh, our environment is a huge uh, contributor to global uh, greenhouse gas emissions, right? So, so we really need to re-engineer, rethink our whole food system. If you're going to re-engineer the food system, then you need to start by tackling three of the biggest problems in food production today. These problems are space, the amount of land that it takes to produce the food, resources, how much water or electricity or feed it takes for raising animals, as well as equipment or personnel it takes to produce a food source, and time. How much time, from the very start up until the moment it hits your plate, does it take to produce? Let's start with space and take a look at our worst offender, beef. Let's say you want to produce 100 grams of protein through beef farming. 100 grams will be our average daily protein intake estimate. Uh, it's, it probably varies based on your genetics, but we, we generally have an idea of how much protein you know, we need based on, uh, on body weight. And, and a protein-deficient diet is, is certainly um, a recipe for uh, disaster. And, and, and long-term, you know, it, it can lead to uh, things like muscle wasting. Depending on size, this might be larger or smaller for you, but for many people, this is the amount you would want to consume to support muscle repair and growth or stave off health conditions such as sarcopenia, which is the dangerous loss of muscle mass as you age. To produce those 100 grams, the amount that you'll need for one day, and just one day, you'll need about 1,900 square feet of space. The world... Uh, is running out of land. There's really, there's no more arable land to to create more, you know, farms. Like I said, like if if we don't change dramatically the way that we do things, the world will need to find another Canada to be able to support a population of 10 billion. To meet the needs of your annual protein intake, if you were to only get your protein from beef, everyone, every single person would require 12 football fields of land to grow the beef required to meet that need. If we want to keep trying to feed everyone with beef meat, which is one of the most popular foods around the world, by 2050, we'll need to find 120 billion football fields worth of farmable land. Spoiler alert, not possible. That's more than four times the surface area of land on Earth. Now, of course, no one is getting all of their protein from beef. But like I said, it's one of the most popular foods in the world, especially in the Western Hemisphere, where many people consume beef in some form at every meal of the day. When it comes to resources, let's turn our attention to farmed fish. Many studies have compared basically the carbon footprint of various um, food production industries. And quote-unquote blue foods usually come out on top in terms of impact on freshwater use. Water is becoming uh, a scarce commodity. Fresh water is a precious resource, and its scarcity is not a problem that is confined to underdeveloped countries. It's happening right now on every continent, and if it hasn't affected you already, the day when it does is probably not far away. In 2022, the California government ordered thousands of farms and entire cities to stop pumping water due to extreme drought conditions. 
And there are 2 million private wells in the state whose owners are not able to access adequate water due to drought and industrial pumping of aquifers. We didn't really ever think that the world could, could run out of water. But you start to read articles about, you know, uh, satellites measuring uh, depressions in the land in the U.S. because the aquifers have all dried up and they're not being replenished. That's just one example of how water scarcity is very real right here in North America. The situation is much more dire when it comes to many countries across Africa, the Middle East, as well as the most populous country in the world, India. Like Water will become one of the most precious commodities on this planet. I hope you're sitting down because you might become faint from what I'm about to tell you. To produce 100 grams of protein from farmed fish, 1,619 liters of water will be used. Let's put that into context. That is the amount of drinking water that you will consume in two and a half years. And it is the amount of water you will use by flushing the toilet 400 times. And that's just for one single day worth of protein. When it comes to time, it takes about 18 months from the time a calf is born to the time it is ultimately purchased at a grocery store, and around seven months for farmed fish. Let's take a look at these same problems from the perspective of another source. Protein is found in a variety of foods, but another source that has it in abundance that we require is plants. Plant-based protein is an ever-increasingly popular way of delivering protein into people's diets. It has a lot of upsides when you stack it against beef protein. No animals are killed and it takes far fewer resources. Just 37 square feet to the 1900 required for beef protein. It still takes an enormous 178 liters of water per 100 grams. But when compared to the 1600 liters for farmed fish, it's a massive improvement. Just 27 toilet flushes to keep things consistent. And when it comes to time, it takes nine months to produce from the time it is planted to the time it's shipped to consumers. But when it comes to feeding 10 billion people, even improving 10 times or sometimes 100 times on the key obstacles in our path is not enough. With the level of food insecurity that exists now in 2023, we simply cannot balloon our global population by 25% and use the same methods that we rely on today. There isn't enough space, there aren't enough resources, and there's not enough time. These are the three major problems that Mark and Small Food are addressing with their nutrient-dense ingredient. They're important because, as we said before, these are three of the biggest problems we face in conventional food production when we factor in another 2 billion people on this planet. Beef needs 1,900 square feet per 100 grams of protein, and pea protein requires 36 square feet. Small food needs just two and a quarter. And then from a land use, it's just, it's a small fraction of what you would need to, to grow uh, pea protein and soy protein. And at 10 liters of fresh water use per 100 grams of protein, small foods product is the most water efficient food in the world. So we have to think about how efficiently can we produce this food as far as water consumption. 
And the good thing about fermentation is that, first of all, it uses very little water compared to, uh, you know, producing row crops like uh, pea and soy and corn. But that water is also uh, able to be recycled. We can capture that water at the end of the process and actually bring it full circle to be able to do use it for uh, future fermentations. So we know that Mark and Small Food have made incredible inroads into the problems with space and resources, two things that are decimating our climate and the world's ecosystems in a myriad of ways. But on top of all of that, on top of the water scarcity, the greenhouse gas emissions of agriculture, and the depletion of our oceans, is the crushing weight of time. So when you have these micronutrients and you supply some sugar, uh, and then there's the, you know, the temperature element and, you know, kind of like airflow. Uh, but when all these things come together in the right way, it's kind of magic. And this particular microbe is off the charts in terms of its ability to grow. It, it grows about 10 to 20 times faster than typical microalgae, which means it's more efficient. And so that was part of how this microbe was selected, not just for proteins, not just for production of omega-3s to get it to a place where this can actually serve humanity in a very big way means it has to be cost effective to produce it at scale so the faster the fermentation goes you know the the more the cost to produce it is dropping the time it takes to produce some of the foods that we depend on now is time that a world of 10 billion people doesn't have From fermentation to delivery, Small Foods product takes just seven days. The XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion competition began in 2020, and it will conclude in 2024. It started with 353 teams, and through multiple elimination rounds, there remains only six. After everything you've learned, you might not be surprised that Small Food is one of those six. Nova Scotia is a small province with gigantic ambition. Fishing and seafood is baked into the genetics of this place, so it makes sense that a company like Small Food would start, build, and thrive here. But it's a lot more than history that keeps people like Mark here, founding future-shaping global companies. Why Nova Scotia is a great environment for becoming an entrepreneur, starting a company, Most of the world you'll find, even in the early startup stages, it's really hyper-competitive. But in Nova Scotia here, there's there's more of a community, there's more of a collaborative uh, mentality that has has created, uh, I think, um, a much healthier, you know, startup ecosystem. If you're from Nova Scotia, you'd be forgiven for looking outwards to other cities and other countries to find the next world-changing idea. But if you do, you might just find yourself missing out on the most groundbreaking ideas that will shape the future that one day we'll all be living in. It's not just us in this small but mighty province that are rooting for small food. It's everyone, whether they know it or not, on planet Earth, as well as the two billion people that aren't even here yet. New Wave is a Life Sciences Nova Scotia podcast, and it's produced by Snack Labs. 
It's written and hosted by me, Taylor McGilvery, and it's edited by Brian Stever, Jeremy Saunders, and me. Sound design and engineering by Donovan Morgan. Special thanks to the team at Life Sciences Nova Scotia, Sean Awalt, Doris Grant, Carrie Manette, Kira McGlinchey, and Lorianne Coring. And to our guests, 